If baseball were different, how different would it be? On the case with Light Riffin, all analytically. Crosscheck and compile, find a new understanding. Not effectively, while I can you not be pedantic? Yes, when it comes to baseball, how can you not be pedantic? Hello and welcome to episode 2106 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Raleigh of Fangraphs and I am joined by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, Happy New Year. How are you? Happy New Year to you. Welcome back. And Thanks. also happy season when we can finally say last year when we <sighs> refer to last season and it's okay. And even if you're pedantic about it. Yeah, our um, brief but recurring national nightmare is over, and here we are uh, in the year of our Lord 2024 with last season firmly in the rear view. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the GMs and the Pobos mostly abided by your wishes, not entirely <laughs> when it came to taking the holidays off. They took them off to the extent that you did not have to make your mom Mm -mm. mad by editing and publishing anything for Fancraft. So that was the important thing. Maybe that's just a reflection of there aren't that many major free agents left or moves to be made that would merit a holiday post. Right. Because there were some signings and some trades, and we can catch up on the backlog of those today. But none of them really rose to the level, at least individually, of, okay, I got to slack someone and get them on this immediately. Well, I mean, you you um, deputized our our good friend Craig Goldstein, I'm given to understand, Mm -hmm. to talk about the – the transaction most proximate to the holiday week yes. that would have required um, bothering people uh, with the Dodgers signing of Yamamoto. Mm-hmm. In case anyone was wondering, like it for the Dodgers. That's my take, you know? <laughs> think he's yeah. going to be good? Think they're going to be good. I, I mm. don't know. I, I'm Bold. sorry that you were denied this brave perspective um, <laughs> yeah. for a whole week. But uh, yeah, I mean, like, look, I don't want to uh, therapize anyone I've never met. I don't want to therapize anyone because I'm not a I'm not a certified counselor of any stripe, Ben. <laughs> and I don't know that we need to pathologize behavior that might just be seen as sort of typical doing business. But I I am inspired to ask the following question: What's up with Jerry? You know, like what's up with him? What's going on with Jerry? Does Jerry um, harbor animus toward people in his life, toward himself, toward us, the media? Is this a dare on Jerry's part? Is he speaking to me personally, trying to sort out just how big a signing in terms of the uh, the duration, the size of the deal? the caliber of the free agent he would need to do in order for me at literally 7 p.m. on Christmas Eve to go, <laughs> I gotta go bother somebody now, you know, mm-hmm. to look across the living room at my mom and say, Ma, I got I got some bad news. We have to wait to make cookies and watch White Christmas because, uh, you know, Jerry DePoto must have his way. And I want to say, I like the Mitch Garver signing. I think mm-hmm. that's a good move by those Seattle Mariners. I've been, I think, appropriately harsh, but pretty harsh uh, towards Seattle and their offseason as we've recorded our winter pods here. But, like, I like this. I think this is good. I think it fills an obvious need that they have. I think they will look back and say, yeah, we did well by signing Mitch Garver. But Jerry, my guy, Jer Bear, <laughs> you got to do more than that. 
to get me to make someone else work on Christmas Eve. You got to do much more than that, especially that late in the day. You know, Mm -hmm. you do that and it's like, look, that's 2024 Meg's problem. And Kyle Kishimoto's for Fangraphs, who wrote a good little analysis of the Garver signing for Seattle. But uh, Jerry, what's up, dude? You need to talk to somebody about this? I mean, like a professional, again, not me, because I'm not a certified therapist in Mm -hmm. any state. But I am given to wonder... What's going on with you? Because this is weird. This is like a persistent enough pattern that I can go, you and AJ, you guys okay? Yep. He did make a trade on Thanksgiving Eve, and then he made this signing on Christmas Eve. And this is not the first year when he has made moves on holidays or on the eves of holidays. Maybe it's a market inefficiency that they're exploiting by being workaholics. It's like everyone else has checked out, and so that's when you can – I mean, to make a trade, uh, it takes two to tango, obviously. T- takes two teams to tango and even right. to make a signing it right. makes it takes two parties to tango right yeah. mitch garver had to agree to that deal right. on christmas eve evening <laughs> i don't yeah. know when it was actually agreed upon and when right. it was came out or what but you know the player could right. say you know what get back to me after the holidays right but at least in this case that didn't happen so right. it, it does take someone else to aid and abet Jerry and AJ when it comes to making these moves. But maybe they feel like, hey, I can be in the free agent's ear at this time, or I can be talking to this other GM or Popo at a point where other people are sitting down to dinner or something, you know, and and I can be the only voice and that will help me make these moves. I don't know if that's part of the calculus. I mean, from Mitch Garver's perspective, even if this did get done literally on Christmas Eve, I, sure, great. Like from his side, I totally yeah, understand. Merry it. Christmas! Like, you just yeah, got a deal. I don't know. If, many I don't know of Mitch, right? I don't know if Mitch Garver celebrates Christmas, but you know, this mm-hmm. is a week where you know, regardless of what holidays you do or don't celebrate, like traditionally, you know, we we observe it, Christmas as a federal holiday, and like it's a quiet week for most people at work that week between Christmas and New Year's, and now. If it's the off season and you're a baseball player, you're kind of hanging out no matter what. But like, you might even take some days off from lifting during that week. You mm-hmm. might be like, this is Christmas. I don't have to lift on Christmas. This is a day for resting and presents and such, assuming you celebrate Christmas. But like, I get it from his side because like how great it would feel. You're, you're getting ready to sit down to a holiday dinner again, assuming you celebrate Christmas and you're like $24 million richer. That would be great. That would feel so <laughs> satisfying you know where you're gonna live in the following year like that's great i would Mm -hmm. love that you know i get it and like if you're garver you're like hey where did i stay during spring training last year let's see if they're willing to have us back we can go to the same one run it back right Mm because those facilities are so close to each other in the valley so i get it from his perspective from jerry's it's like once you've kind of gotten the terms generally settled, you're probably safe to wait until at least, you know, the 26th to get that done, right? Mm-hmm. Like the fact that it was on literally Christmas Eve is like a, a level of commitment to the bit that I guess I would, I should like admire, right? But uh, don't 
generally. I found it funny. There were a lot of people on Twitter who were like, oh, poor Meg, she's got to work now. And I was like, no, no, the person to feel sorry for here is Ryan Divish because I, <laughs> you know, I'm the managing editor of Fangirls. We're a national site. We've set an expectation that we are off this week, barring really big, big news. And I think everyone understands that this is not really big, big news. But, you know, Divish, like, he's the beat writer for the team, for the 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 big local paper. He's got a you know, he's got to go disappoint people no yep. matter what. He just, he doesn't get that day off. So mm-hmm. Divish was the one who should really have gotten your sympathy on that day. People are like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, oh, I'm, I am <laughs> drinking a beer right now. We're good. I do have it on, on good authority, Jerry DePoto's authority, in fact, that he did take a little time to relax over the holidays because oh, good. I'm working on a story for which I'm talking to a bunch of GMs and pobos that will be appearing at the ringer sometime soonish. And so nice. I reached out to several of them who I wanted to talk to for this story, including Jerry DePoto. And I sent out an email last week post-Christmas mm-hmm. to some of them, and I said, Hey, if you're taking this week off or whatever, feel free to ignore me. I'll reach out again next week. But for some of them, it's like their only time to talk or it's a time when they don't mind talking. So I ended up speaking to a couple while they were, say, taking a long drive to or from a family thing, for instance. You know, it's a little bit of downtime when they could squeeze me in. But Jerry DePoto responded to me and said, I am, in fact, taking a few days to unplug, at least to the extent that's possible. (laughs) And we said that we would talk this week instead. So I guess it was possible because he did not make another move post-Christmas. So hopefully he did have a few days there. And, you know, if if signing Mitch Garver rose to the level of, okay, I got to get this done over the holidays— Talking to Ben Lindbergh did not, and that is entirely appropriate. Talking to Ben Lindbergh will wait, but I was heartened. Now, he could have not responded to me at all. He was clearly checking his email. (laughs) So there was some some level of work going on there. But as he said, to the extent that's possible, it seemed like he did disengage briefly. So well done, Mr. DePoto. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that because everybody Mm -hmm. deserves a rest, Ben. You know, everybody deserves to to have a little break um, or or even a long break. And, you know, I know that not every everyone who works in baseball celebrates Christmas specifically. So maybe like some of your days are flex in a way. Like maybe right. you're the person who's on call on Christmas in case something happens um, mm-hmm. because you don't celebrate. Who knows? Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of ways to do it. But um, yep. I'm glad he took a I'm glad he took a break. I mean, lest we forget, this is literally a man who had like a health crisis at winter meetings and then was trying to transact from the hospital, as I yes. recall. And and they were like, hey, what if you didn't, though? Mm-hmm. And then he didn't. And that's yep. good. But yeah, it, it, there was still activity, but there was mm-hmm. nothing um, so dramatic. You know, it felt really good once once Soto had been traded, once Otani had been signed, and once Yamamoto had been signed. I was like... Uh, how much do people care about Blake Snell? You know, right. like really, yeah. if we were Snell, like, Bellinger, no, yeah, right. Like, how much do we do? We have to. I was worried that there would be a, a big trade. I thought that that mm-hmm. seemed the most likely, and that you know, if you were making a list of candidates, it might involve some of the Mariners starting pitching, for instance. There was a a big trade that I believe Bob Nightingale 
called the biggest trade of the offseason, <laughs> somehow forgetting about some clearly bigger previous trades. But we will get to Chris Sale oh, and yeah. Von Grissom in a little while. But yeah, while we're on the subject, what did you think of the Mitch Garver fit? What was it, two years, $24 million for him to mostly DH and sometimes catch? Almost certainly to mostly DH. I mean, I, I imagine that um, he will... If he catches, it will be on on very rare occasions because uh, in addition to Cal Raleigh, you know, they made the the trade for Sebi Zavala. Mm -hmm. He does not have any options remaining. And so you would imagine he will be their primary backup, um, especially with Tom Murphy departing in free agency. So, you know, from a fit perspective, the obvious one is at DH and like they need help there. Um, yeah. The Mariners have not had a good sort of even semi-regular DH since Nelson Cruz, really. And they were um, among among teams in baseball last year at the DH position, pretty poor uh, yeah. as these things go relative to the rest of the league. You've mentioned Sam Haggerty more than once on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about that? You know, mm -hmm. it's like uh, you, you don't want you don't want that. You know, and I don't want to, you know, be mean to the young man unnecessarily, but, you know, they they were, um, whether you're looking at it as the primary position or the split wall guys are at DH, like a 91-92 WRC plus team at designated hitter. To put that in contrast, you know, like Shohei Otani, who is famously very good, had like a 154 WRC plus. I mean, not him individually, but like the Angels posted a 154 WRC plus while their guys were DHing. So like, you know, a bit of a gap there. Angels mm -hmm. bad. Mariners um, better than that and trying to be in the postseason. So like, they needed some help. Their offense was sort of meager um, across the board outside of Julio and Cal and J.P. Crawford. So I think it, it addresses a need. And look, I'm not trying to slight Mike Ford, who, you know, hit well in limited duty, but like they needed like a real guy. Mm -hmm. And Mitch Garver's a real guy. Now, how many games will he ultimately play, whether a DH or catcher? That's a good question to ask of Mitch Garver because his history with injuries is pretty extensive. But, um, you know, he's, I think he, he fits a need now mm -hmm. are they done i don't know should they be done no you know they still need help in the outfield i think pretty dramatically unless other people are higher on like cade Marlowe than mm -hmm. i am and cade Marlowe's fine but like again what are we doing here so i think that it's good and my instinct with seattle remains being adam driver and star wars and just going more more. I know he had an actual character name, and I don't want you to tell me what it was. Okay, I won't. <laughs> but you can tell me if you want to. I know it's really bothering you that I can't remember. <laughs> nope, nope. I'm okay. not gonna. I'm not gonna. Don't tell me. that on you. But you. I will say that I analyzed this move mostly in terms of how it affected your minor league free agent draftee. Mm. Brian yeah. O'Keefe and also yeah. Ben Clemens's Ronhel Ravello. Yeah. And so in that sense, bad I was, news for Ravello in particular. I would yes. Think. So I, I was not sorry to see another name added to that mix, a more prominent name. But yeah, Mariners fans mostly care about other factors, and I think it it is good to have a Mitch Carver in hand. Yeah. But yeah, more work to do. 
more work to do. Okay. Well, which <laughs> other transactions do you, what else did you talk about with Craig? I well, didn't listen to that episode. I knew you were doing it. And I was like, cool. Cause I got not enough reception up here to record a podcast. <laughs> Craig, we talked about uh, whether the Dodgers are the heels and the villains of baseball mm. now, and whether he was going to lean into that or whether he was going to defend the Dodgers and mm. whether people are picking on the Dodgers too much and whether it's oh. the teams that don't spend that are the bigger problem for baseball. Yeah. And, much more, really. But I think the one thing that we did not touch on, we talked about Yamamoto specifically and how he fits mm. on the Dodgers and how we think he'll do. But he was introduced after that episode and mm. a few details and quotes came out after that. And one of them was particularly painful, I would imagine, for San Francisco Giants fans because uh, Yamamoto's yeah. agent, Joel Wolf said he thought that San Francisco really reminded him of Osaka and thought it was a beautiful city. So far, so good, right? After the yeah. Buster Posey story about how sure. some free agents supposedly don't want to play in San Francisco. Sure. Apparently, Yamamoto didn't have that concern at all. The quote went on, if the Dodgers had not been pursuing him, there mm. was a good chance San Francisco could have been his destination, Ouch. which is exactly what Giants fans didn't want to hear, probably. I mean, I guess they were happy to hear that San Francisco reminded him of Osaka, and he would have been happy sure. to play there, if not for yeah. the Giants' direct division rivals, if they yeah. didn't exist, which that comes on the heels of, of course, the Giants saying that they more or less matched the Otani offer yep. that he accepted with the Dodgers. So again, it's just the Dodgers are thwarting everyone, not necessarily by offering more money than anyone else, but just by Although being often the by Dodgers. More money than anyone else. <laughs> yeah, or at least cumulatively, <laughs> right. just given that they've signed or extended all of these guys. But yeah. in each individual deal, they didn't really blow everyone else away. Right. It's just that they ended up being the most appealing destination. So this is is sort of unusual for baseball, I feel yeah. like, where it's now as much about the program as it is about the money. Right. It is a very kind of college sports thing where it's like, who's the coach and, you know, what's the NIL situation or like how good is the team, mm -hmm. other things, not just what your salary is, which is right. very often what it comes down to for free agents. Yeah. Now it's just how do you beat the Dodgers track record when it comes to player development and winning? That seems to right. be as big an asset for them as the ability to just spend a ton. They're getting, in some cases, maybe more favorable terms on these deals. But more than that, they're just the number one destination for these players. I think Yamamoto said that even if Otani hadn't signed there, the yeah. Dodgers still would have been his top choice. Right. So how do you beat that if you're any other team? It's more frustrating in a way, because if they were just outbidding you, you could at least theoretically offer more money, or at least you could just chalk it up to, well, they're rich and that's why they're winning. But it's not just that. It's these other factors. It's that they're good at building teams and building players. And that's an even tougher obstacle to overcome. I think a couple of things about that. The first of which is that I I don't think that we can separate quite so cleanly the favorable terms from the commitment to winning to the spending thing, right? Like one True. of the primary ways that they demonstrate a commitment to winning is that 
they spend money to win and they do yeah. it over a long time. So if you're a pobo or, you know, I think the the primary audience for this kind of thing is is the owner and you want to replicate that, like, we, you know, it's it's important to be good at everything. So good luck with that. But the thing that's most directly in your control is a willingness to spend and to sustain that willingness over, you know, a prolonged period. So I think that that part is sort of squarely within the control of ownership. Now, the Giants have been trying to spend for a while, so I can appreciate being a Giants front office person or a Giants fan and feeling frustrated, but I think that would bring me to the second thing, which is they still only have this, you know, like a 26-man roster and a 40-man roster beyond that, right? So, like, at some point, the Dodgers will just be full. And then, like, uh, guess what? If you are willing to spend and you have invested in player dev and you've shown that you can hire and retain smart staff and you sort of build a good team, then, yeah, you can you can attract free agents if you translate willing to, you know, trying to win into being willing to spend. I don't I don't think it's as grim. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if you're a fan, the part of it that is as grim is that the number of owners that are willing to do the trying to win part that translates into willing to write a check. It, it's not um, an exhaustive list. Like if you go through all 30 teams, it's, it's short of 30, mm-hmm. but it's non-zero. Um, and again, that part is is firmly within their control. One other related story that surfaced is that you Darvish was sad because he thought that he was just going to get the whole gang together. He was going to help recruit other Japanese stars to come play in San Diego. Now the Padres did sign Yuki Matsui since we last spoke. So that was somewhat notable, but they don't have Otani. They don't have Yamamoto. And so, Darvish said, I'm I'm sad. I don't know what to say. Yeah. I'm sad. And he just thought that after the WBC, apparently, like, you know, maybe they would just all reunite in San Diego. And he had talked mm. to AJ Preller about that. He was imagining that Otani and Yamamoto could potentially sign there. Japanese people would get together on the Padres and want to beat the Dodgers is how the Google Translate translated that at least. And he talked to Preller and Preller said at the time, like when Darvish was going to sign his contract, he wanted to make sure that he would still be able to sign Yamamoto even with Darvish. And Preller said, yeah, they could do that theoretically obviously things have changed for yeah. the Padres since then so yeah. that was I felt for him yeah me too. Uh, he just he wanted to get all his his WBC pals together, together again, again. <laughs> and yeah. rather than that happening they went to the Dodgers instead of Matsui so that was one of the other notable signings that Matsui went to San Diego but not quite as noteworthy as the others Well, there are, you know, there are still notable uh, NPB players in in next Mm -hmm. year's international free agent class. So, you know, don't don't give up hope. You, Yeah. Imanaka is still out there. Right. That's Mm -hmm. true. So there's there's still some hope to be had. But, yeah, I get that makes me bummed for him. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. I want to save the sale trade and Giolito signing for the end here because I think that'll segue into a stat blast inspired by that. But Mm. maybe we could talk about Frankie Montas going to the Reds because the Reds have been active this offseason. I don't know what to make of their activity Mm. exactly, but 
after the Dodgers, the Phillies, which was just re-signing NOLA, the Diamondbacks, and the Giants, the Reds are fifth in free agent spending thus right. far. And we've talked about some of those previous moves, Nick Martinez, Emilio Pagan. We puzzled over the Jamer Condelario signing. Then there was like Buck Farmer and Austin Wins. But now they've signed Frankie Montas to a one-year, $16 million deal, which I just do not know how to analyze exactly because I guess if this is good, healthy Frankie Montas, then that would be a steal. But – I have no way of telling how likely that is to happen. I mean, he missed almost the entire 2023 season. He made it back at the very end, just got into one big league game and a few minor league games. And of course, in late 2022, after he was traded from the A's to the Yankees, he was bad and also hurt. So between that, the shoulder surgery, It's good that he got back on the mound before the end of the year, but I have no idea if he's going to be pre-shoulder woes Frankie Montas or not. So, I mean, the saying goes, there's no such thing as a bad one-year deal, but like if he doesn't pitch, it's probably a bad one-year deal. So, (laughs) Right. Well, and particularly since they have indicated, I think today they indicated that they're largely done, which is interesting because they still have like you know an entire team of infielders and not enough spots to play all of them so that part's a little bit strange to me one approach you can take when you are in the position that cincinnati is where you are in a division that you know is reasonably winnable where you have young players who you're pretty excited about maybe some of whom if you decide not to do deals now you're holding on to to potentially have ammunition at the trade deadline question mark is to sort of embrace variance uh, and hope that the variance you get is good we've already seen them kind of do a version of this when they signed nick martinez right where it's Mm -hmm. like martinez had been very good in relief for san diego had expressed a desire to start had not been especially effective when he had been a starter previously but I think had improved meaningfully in San Diego just as a pitcher in general. And I think, you know, his role with them was as much about need as it was um, about his own particular skills. So you look at Nick Martinez and you're the Reds and you're like, hey, yeah, we'll try as a starter and see how that goes. And if you are great, great. And if not, we'll find a spot for you in the bullpen. And I imagine that Montas is sort of in the similar in a similar camp and that they probably know enough. Clearly, they've seen his to think that he's intact and will be able to pitch, but they probably don't know exactly what they're going to get out of him given the the injury layoff this, this past season. So if he is a version of his old self, like, and they can capture like positive variants, they're awesome. Mm-hmm. If not, like, I guess they still have all those infielders. Like it is a little bit of a head scratcher because I like big swaths of that Reds roster and I'm, You know, I like some of their young pitching, but also they strike me as a team that could benefit from some stable innings. Yeah. And I don't think that they have a lot of those (laughs) right now. So that's odd because you'd think they'd be like in, in the market for them. And we've seen, you know, what the going rate for some of those, you know, mid to back of the rotation will give you a bunch of innings. How good will they be? I mean, it depends on how many home runs Lance Lane gives up, right? Mm -hmm. But 
he he's gonna pitch a bunch of them in all likelihood and we've seen what that guy goes for this offseason it's in the like 10 to 12 million dollar range so you know maybe they tried for some of those guys and they didn't want to pinch in Cincinnati that's totally possible but I'm I'm kind of surprised that they weren't interested in doing a little bit more like Montas got one year and 16 million was Lucas Giolito really out of reach reach for Cincinnati I mean I know he got two years and 38 but like you know, there's options in that deal and all kinds of all kinds of goofy stuff. Like he, you know, so I, I'm just surprised that there wasn't that there aren't more like stable innings that have been built into that rotation already. But right. but also like you know, it takes two to tango, as you've <laughs> reminded us today. And maybe these are the tangos that they could arrange. You know, these are the yeah. dance partners who were willing to put them on their card. That's mm-hmm. a metaphor that kind of <laughs> hangs together. Yeah, it more or less worked. Yeah. yeah. Right, because compared to the four teams that are ahead of them in free agent spending so far, those four teams all got a star or someone a lot closer to a star than the best player the Reds have signed. The Dodgers got like three different stars or at least two different free agent stars. And then the the Diamondbacks got Eduardo Rodriguez and also Lourdes Gurriel and the Phillies re-signed Aaron Nola and the Giants got Lee. And then the Reds... It's just sort of this smattering of, you know, it's like a, mish, a mishmash. Yeah, it's a mishmash. It's like a that's hard to say. A dog's breakfast of free agents. It's like, you know, you have. Wait, wait, hold on. Is that an expression? A dog's breakfast? Yes. <laughs> yes. That's an expression. A, yes. Is this an East Coast thing? I don't think so. A I, well, dog's breakfast. It might, it might be a British thing. Sometimes oh, I say some okay. British things, but yeah, it's at least according to Merriam-Webster, it's a confused mess or mixture. A so it's, dog's it's breakfast. A, sort of like a, a girl dinner, but it's a dog's breakfast. Oh my god! Maybe. Don't get me <laughs> don't get me freaking started on girl dinner. Okay. What you're just making a cheese board? Like yeah. what are we doing here? Oh, you're having snacks for dinner. We've all done that. We don't have to. Put, it doesn't I, have. That's not a gendered concept. What are we yeah, anyway? I fully agree. <laughs> but but they've ended up spending a fair amount of money. Yeah. Where the guys that they've signed are making a combined. $55 million in right. 2024, which is not a significant number. I mean, that's enough in theory right. to sign anyone. Right. But of course, this is an in practice situation and they haven't made any really long term commitments. So right. it's obviously different to spend that much for one year than it is to sign up to spend that much for seven or 10 years. Sure. To convince ownership to do that. And then also it does come down to persuading people to sign with you. So you look at the money they've spent and you're like, well, you could have just put that towards the best player on the market or maybe a couple of really good players. And instead you've got this guy who doesn't really fit in with your infield situation. And then this other guy who's coming off an injury and this other guy who hasn't started so regularly before. It's just like a bunch of question marks, you right. know? And so I, I kind of feel like, well, if you could have put that same amount of money toward the top of the market guys, maybe that would have been more dependable, a better bet. But as you said, you do have to convince those players to sign. So, like, you know, I could say, yeah, they could have spent that amount of money on Yamamoto, but they're 
A, probably not going to commit to the length and the total dollars that it takes to get Yamamoto. And also, if he's not going to sign in San Francisco, even though it reminds him of Osaka, then is he going to sign in Cincinnati? (laughs) So, you know, what can they point to? I mean, they could certainly point to... Skyline Chili. Yeah, (laughs) they could point to all their young rising stars and they could say we're set up well for the future and you could make a convincing case but you can't necessarily make a case based on look how high our payrolls have been or look how consistently we've been winners so maybe you do have to pick at the periphery and settle for some less sexy free agents and, and hope that you distribute that same amount of money over a bigger number of free agents and ultimately it gives you depth and it gives you the same amount of production and that's kind of an intermediate step that you have to take until you establish that you are a perennial winner and then you can take the next step and that'll catapult you to being able to really be in the market for the very tippy top guys so I, I guess that would probably be their rationale or their explanation. I mean, they might just say, we really like these guys and we think this is the better way to do it. But if they felt like their hands were sort of tied when it came to persuading other players to sign, maybe, maybe this is the better way, but it's more high variance as a strategy, I suppose. I will be fascinated to see like what our understanding of the Candelario deal is like 12 months from now because yeah. it is easily the most head scratchery of all of their deals um, because you know they as I said they have so many infielders they just got a bushel and a peck but when you look at the duration and amount of money on that deal like I think people thought well of Candelario coming into this offseason but people also were like has Candelario like you know he hasn't done this all the time is he really you know the guy he was in 2023 and 21 or is he more like the guys he'd been before that so they had did they have to give him three years and 45 million dollars in order to sign with them like what what is our understanding of that going to be in terms of how we interpret their offseason 12 months from now i don't know the answer to that like they could have given 45 million dollars to a starter like Mm -hmm. in theory but again could they find one to dance with ben Mm -hmm. you know this is the question, but yes, yeah, that one, that Candelaria signing, so weird. It's um, so <laughs> weird. It's still so weird. I keep expecting it to make more sense, but then like you still have Jonathan India on your team, and you still have Noel Marte. You still have all these, just like so many infielders, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's a weird. It's been a weird off season in Cincy. I want to give them appropriate credit for having committed some resources because that has been. You know, we're talking about them adding guys to the organization and doing stuff rather than, like, the various sons of Cincy, right? And that's a Mm -hmm. positive tonal shift in their offseason, you know? And this team is in, I think, much better position today than it was this time last offseason. And so I don't want to give, you know, short shrift to what they have done, but some of what they have done— is confounding. So, mm-hmm. you know, where does that leave us? I don't know, with a plate of weird chili. <laughs> yeah. A couple other teams that made multiple moves, although not multiple major moves. The Blue Jays, thus far thwarted when it comes to pursuing the big game. Their <laughs> they, trades were weird. Their signings were weird, too. Or at least so, one of them was. <laughs> yeah, so they re-signed Kevin Kiermeyer. Fine. And then they also signed Isaiah Kiner-Falefa. IKF is a Blue Jay now. Yeah. Which, yeah, I guess that one also falls into the 
Too many infielders. Too many infielders. Kind of conversation. It makes then, me think they're going to trade somebody. That that was yeah. the first thought I had when I saw that they had signed him. I was like, oh, so is like Biggio out the door? Are they moving? Right. Santiago Espinal. Like, is he is he going to be on the move soon? Because it seems like I mean, it's good to have depth, but like they don't. They got too many guys. Yeah, and <laughs> IKF plays some outfield too. So sure. you know he's a yep. uh, he's an okay utility guy he's not going to hit much but he can give you a decent dependable glove at a number of positions but yeah they do have a lot of position players so many guys so i mean makes sense to bring back kiermeyer of course i mean he did exactly what they wanted him to do last year and so they're bringing him back for more like i i had some doubts about kiermeyer when they acquired him Despite his track record, like he was coming off the hip injury, right? right. He had missed much of 2022 and, right. you know, he's into his 30s and you wonder how long is he going to remain an elite defender? Right. And the answer was at least one more season. At least one more season. <laughs> he was his usual fantastic self out there. Yep. Plus 18 defensive runs saved, plus 13 outs above average or t- plus 12 runs above average stat cast based. So that's Thus far, he has not shown any sign of slippage whatsoever, and he was about as good as he ever is offensively, too, just, you know, giving you a consistent league average bat. I mean, that's a valuable player, and they're just going year to year with him, so if you don't have to commit long term, you can bring him back for one year, ten and a half million or whatever it was, then if he does start to slip or show some age-related decline, you're not locked in to those decline years. So that's uh, pretty much perfect. And I I know he kind of became a fan favorite in Toronto too, even though he was not really a fan favorite before because he'd been a division rival and because of the whole like picking up the card. Remember that weird, the the scouting (laughs) card? (laughs) We were so much more innocent then, you know, those were simpler days. Yeah, he, he quote unquote stole the uh, scouting card that was found and did not return is maybe um, a more precise way of describing that incident. I'm doing air quotes, (laughs) incident. Yes, it it fell out of the wristband of Blue Jays catcher Alejandro Kirk, and he did not immediately return it. (laughs) But that is a distant memory now, Toronto fans like Kevin Kiermaier. So yeah, yeah, they've still been mentioned in the pursuit of every major free agent, and they still are. So obviously they they have to land one of those players to make their fans happy. But making some moves on the margins, and yeah, Yeah. maybe it, it will be a preparation for some subsequent trade or deal from depth. They're in a position where they can move a guy if they want to. And I mean, like, they do have to account for the Matt Chapman of it all somewhere. I don't know that, I mean, like, I don't know that IKF is like a one-to-one substitute for him. You know, there's the argument that they could just build depth and try to, you know, do the old money ball or place him in the aggregate, but you're not getting Matt Chapman's production either in the field or at the plate from some of the sort of utility guys that they have on the roster at the moment, even with Chapman's up 
ups and downs over the years, but it just it feels like a move in anticipation of of future moves. So I do kind of want to reserve the right to grade it as an incomplete uh, mm-hmm. on the IKF front. Man, good for that guy. Like he's, you know, he's <laughs> he's carved out a big league career for himself. Um yep. even though he's not like a true standout anywhere. So like good for IKF. But um yep. the Kiermaier one makes a ton of sense to me. If there are no bad one-year deals or especially no bad one-year deals for guys who have shown that they can pl- play a plus center field. So that is fine. I'm still scoring them an incomplete. Mm-hmm. Um and I just hope that whatever, if they if they do a big deal, Ben, I hope that the way we find out about it is Braves-like, where it's just Blue Jays PR announces a big signing so that um, their poor fans don't have to go through a day of, you know, yeah. emotional toil, even, even if it ends up being positive for them, right? They've mm-hmm. been through enough, I think, the folks of Toronto. So I hope that they have more to come. And then I imagine that if they do, we will see some consolidation validation of their infield depth with IKF sticking around because of the versatility he brings to the outfield. Yep. They're just collecting they're collecting center fielders. Yep. Are all of those guys plus center fielders? No, but they're collecting center fielders. They're collecting catchers. They're collecting center fielder catchers. I'm at <laughs> the center field game. I'm at the catching game. I'm at the duel. What's that meme? You know the meme? The meme's in a commercial now, which made me feel very old even though I got the <laughs> reference. <laughs> yeah, so I'm Quite curious to see how long Kiermaier can keep this up because center field is sort of a young man's position. There aren't many over 30 players there who stick and start and there aren't many who are really good out there, but he's made it work thus far. The other team that made multiple moves, although really mostly minor individually, the White Sox made some signings. They signed Martin Maldonado. They signed Chris Flexen. They signed Tim Hill. Not Rich Hill. Sure. Rich Hill, still a free agent, but Tim Hill Tim is Hill. on the White Sox now. So, yeah, I don't have a whole lot to say about that. We know that Martin Maldonado is employed somewhere, so they've been busy with their catching core. And sure. now we will find out if there is some secret sauce that Martin Maldonado brings with him. If we see the Astros staff fall apart in his absence, if we see the White Sox staff suddenly gel then we will right. know that the Martin Maldonado effect that Carlos Correa is saying that he's worth 15 wins to a staff or to a team. Yeah. Then if those wins get transferred from Houston to Chicago, then we will know there's something that we have not yet quite quantified about Martin Maldonado as a pitcher whisperer, but obviously still has believers because he has not hit like a big leaguer, but he is still a big leaguer. Well, and they had to replace those Sebi Zavala innings. Yes. So, you know, what else are they going to do? Can I say something about Tim Hill? Doesn't he look like he should be playing a bootlegger in like an old-timey movie? <laughs> like he should be running running rum from somewhere to somewhere else during Prohibition, yeah. right? Yeah. Doesn't he? He has that I, look like, and then he gets shot in the first act and his brother <laughs> has to avenge him. Yeah, especially when he has a goatee, which right. just, just Googling his headshots, he doesn't always, but... Sometimes he does, and when he does, that only enhances that effect. <laughs> well, and there was a while pre-foreign substance enforcement where he would just have – he'd have goop on his hat. He'd have – you know, he'd have a, a like a touch of rosin back there. He just looked – he looked uh, dirty and from another time. You know, mm-hmm. that was that's my main impression of Tim Hill. That I, I, I see him on the side of the road, having been um, gotten by federal authorities, going, "Avenge me!" I don't even know if he's from the South. I'm just doing a terrible stereotype. <laughs> 
That's what the guy in the movie is. I'm not saying that's what Tim Hill is. I mean, I'm saying he looks like that guy, but I don't know if he talks like that guy. Who knows what he talks like? <laughs> Tim Hill's from Mission Hills, California. Oh, terrible. Sorry, Tim. I, I had you pegged wrong. I take it all back. <laughs> anyway, I guess the White Sox are, are doing their best to address their depth problems. They haven't really addressed their top of the roster problems, but the depth problems that have been so acute over the past few years, they've made some moves to acquire more players than they have given up, at least like in the bummer trade with Atlanta. They got a whole bunch of guys. A a trade that involved Aaron Bummer, not a trade that was a bummer. I mean, we can reserve judgment, but that's not what you meant. Yeah. (laughs) So so they've they've acquired a bunch of guys. I don't know if that will make the difference for them, but Hopefully it will help them avoid just some replacement level killers, some yeah. some gaping holes in the lineup when someone Terrible. gets hurt or in the bullpen or wherever, because it was kind of an issue for them almost everywhere over the past few years. I really don't know where they stand or, or how they see themselves. They'll be an interesting team to talk about when we get yeah. to preview season. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Leland, he did get me. I don't know. Is that what people who died in Prohibition era times were like? They're like, oh no. Sure. The yeah, they did track me down. <laughs> I could write a great screenplay. I have no thoughts on the twins signing Josh Stamont or the oh, Angels yeah, signing Zach Plesac. Sure, do you, no. Do you have any thoughts on the Esteban Floreal trade? I guess you you edited a piece about that that was published that at Fangrass.com. Thoughts about it are very smart. Um, mm-hmm. No, it's like a, like you have a, a surplus of outfielders. Are, are all of them good? I mean, and we have a surplus of pitchers. Are all of them healthy? And so let's swap some of those and um, see what we can each get out of it. If Floreal can make enough contact to actually actualize his power, I like that for them very much because there were times where it felt like the home run leaders uh, were just hitting more home runs than the entire Cleveland Guardians team last year, which was absolutely uh, lacking in power. Um, so that piece of it, I can understand the appeal of from, from Cleveland sign because Floreal definitely has a lot of power. Again, whether he can actually make enough contact to get to it, it remains to be seen. Um, but he clearly didn't have a spot on that Yankees team given their um, their outfield situation at the moment. You know, Morris is um, somehow still prospect eligible, which is shocking. I had to like double check that that was true, but can be really interesting when healthy. It's just the one healthy part that's been a problem for him. Um, So, yeah. The only thing I wanted to mention before we get to sale is that Andrelton Simmons retired officially over the holidays. Yeah. You may not have known that he was not already retired. He's not played in a while, but... Seeing the official announcement that he had retired just made me reminisce about the career of Andrelton Simmons, which I enjoyed. He was certainly a a frequent topic, his defensive play in particular, on this podcast in past years. There was a time when we would just watch Andrelton Simmons' defensive plays and giggle and marvel at them. And it was not really that long ago, Mm -hmm. once he headed downhill, it was a pretty steep descent. So yeah. he didn't really have a, a long decline phase or, or tail to his career. But man, he was just a really fun, fantastic player. One of the best defenders, if not the best defender that I've ever really watched regularly or 
to play during my time covering baseball professionally. So it was just a ton of fun to see him get up to his hijinks and highlights out there. So I'm going to miss it. The end came so quickly um, that it was hard at times to like remember how high the defensive highs were. Um, But he was really something to watch um, when he was at his peak. Yeah. Yeah, and there was a time when when he hit for a while. That was his never his his strong suit, of course. But no. he made some changes at the plate, and and you know, a couple of those years with the Angels, uh, he was at least a league average hitter. And if you're league average or a bit better as a deserved Gold Glover, then that made him an absolute star. Like, I mean, I'm on his Baseball Reference page, but just going by Baseball Reference, where like 2017. He was like an eight-win player <laughs> by their metric or a six-win player in 2018, like those couple seasons. And he was like, you know, four, four-and-a-half-win player a couple seasons before that. He had several seasons where he was like a four-to-eight-win player, mostly on the strength of his defense, which is really hard Incredible, to do. But yeah. yeah, he was just so superlative. He was like Ozzy-like out there, and he would just make plays that you didn't need the stats necessarily. It was like it passed the eye test totally that you could tell no one else is going to get to that ball. You know, like the plays that he would make just going out to the outfield to catch a pop-up or you know, there were some plays like I don't. He wouldn't always have to do like a Jeterian jump throw or something because he just had such great range that he didn't need to do that. But just so many flashy like flips and double plays and feeds or you know bare hands or just like uh, gloving and throwing in the same motion or diving and right. getting up to throw incredibly quickly. And he was just really good. I I wish he yeah. had stuck around longer. I wish he had had a phase where he was like still maybe a good glove on the bench, that kind of thing. And he just didn't have that. Like he's cratered. Yeah. He's only 34 and his age 32 season was his last one with the Cubs. He kind of went from like starting to just done almost without much of an intermediate phase. He had injuries and everything else. So, you know, I think that sapped some of the the talent too. But yeah, just uh, don't let his quick exit, I guess, overshadow the fact that he was maybe the best I've seen. Yeah. Only six players have as high a career war with as low a career OPS plus as Andrelton Simmons, Ozzy, Luis Aparicio, Omar Vizquel, Roger Peckinpah, Rabbit Moranville, and Mark Belanger, all defensive standouts. Also, isn't he like the all-time leader in defensive runs saved? I think, I think he, that might be true. I think he might be because uh, he's, you know, that goes back to 2002, so it doesn't right. cover everyone. Before that, you're using different metrics. But yeah, I'll I'll check on that. But he he's up there. If he's not the top, he's very close to it. So the sale trade, Chris Sale traded from Boston to Atlanta for Von Grissom and the Red Sox also kicking in considerable cash, $17 million. And then the partner move to that was that the Red Sox replaced Sale in their rotation by signing Lucas Giolito to a two-year deal with an option after the first year. 
So this is an interesting one to analyze for the Red Sox and for Atlanta. The Red Sox get themselves a young infielder. They get themselves a second baseman they're committing to who maybe was forced out of the picture, the playing time picture in Atlanta. What do you make of that move, I guess, before we talk about Giolito as a sale substitute? I think that Sale makes a particular kind of sense for Atlanta insofar as he is someone they likely view as more valuable come October than he necessarily is during the regular season. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they have the depth to weather injuries related to him, which he probably will have some of. I think that, I mean, he's not the guy he was, but he can still strike dudes out. And um, I think that where else but the rotation are they going to add, really? Like, they don't need anything on their infield, despite all their weird machinations that Bauman ended up writing about because he was mm-hmm. like, I have to figure out this puzzle. What a weird yeah. little puzzle they've made for themselves. I think that he comes pretty inexpensively given the cash that Boston is sending along with him. And there's not really anywhere for Grissom to play. And I'm pretty down on Grissom. So I like Atlanta's side of it better than, I guess, Boston's. But I don't dislike it for Boston because, like, why not try Grissom and see if you have something there, right? Like, they're not, you know, for all their protestations, I don't think that they're a team that's really going to be in a a strong contending position this year. But their farm system is so robust that they might be in one in fairly short order. It is weird that they are uh, moving pitching given, um, you know, like that they probably needed more pitching. So then they're moving pitching and that means they have less. Um, But that's where Giolito comes in, maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So I think it was mostly just like, huh, what? You Mm -hmm. did what? And yeah. and then it was like the Saturday before New Year's, right? And I was like, that is definitely 20, 24 Meg's problem. Yeah. And Jeff Passan broke the news, not the Atlanta yes. PR department. Yes. Which, yes. <laughs> again, I guess it takes two to tango on a trade. Yeah, it had to have come from Boston's side. It takes sure. one team to leak. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I can guess which one it was in this case. Yeah, I imagine that that was um, – emanating from old Beantown um, mm-hmm. rather than from Atlanta. But that was very funny. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> this is like not the most important part of this transaction, but it is a, an interesting part of it. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. So I guess in, in fairness to Bob Nightingale, he said it was perhaps the biggest trade of the offseason, which mm. leaves some room for uncertainty. I think we can I mean, say with some certainty that it was not the biggest trade of the offseason. Juan Soto got traded, if you remember. That was like earlier in the same month and Tyler Glasnow right. got traded and extended. So those were probably bigger, but this was a notable trade. So you're down on Grissom. Clearly, Atlanta was down on Grissom. Yeah. It seemed like in 2022, when he came up his age 21 season and he hit that he was just going to be another infielder of the future for them, that maybe he'd be the next guy to sign an extension and be there forever. And then he didn't hit in his 23 games in the majors in 2023. And he got sort of supplanted by Orlando Arcia, who did sign an extension. And of course, Albies was already extended too. And so there just wasn't a lot of room for him. Grissom did do fairly well in AAA, I guess, as mm-hmm. a credit to him. Like, yeah. he, he could have taken that as a demotion, a setback. And instead, he really raked their 921 OPS in AAA. So that's some 
sign of optimism for for Boston, right? Yeah. But what is it uh, about him? Is it the lack of patience? Is it the arm strength? What do you not yes. like about Grizzly? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, like, I think yeah. that he, the profile of the plate is fairly limited, and he can't really be, like, you know, if you want someone to be, like, the super utility guy who has a light bat, but, like, he's a good defensive substitute, like, that guy generally needs to be able to play shortstop, and I don't think that Chris M. can. Like, he, they didn't have a shortstop, right? They were like, well, you know, I'm them. And so they were given an opportunity to the guys on their roster to sort of seize a role coming out of camp. And he didn't do that. And mm-hmm. so that seems like maybe not the the best, right? That they were just like, here's Arcia. We're gonna go with Arcia instead of having, you know, some of their internal options like really seize the role out of camp, I think is is telling you, right, that he did do well in AAA. Who knows? Like sometimes people need a change of scenery. Sometimes people develop late. Like there are things that could happen here. And I don't think that it really is a problem from Boston's perspective because like try some guys out and see if one of them is good. Like that's fine. He's still young. He is not prospect eligible anymore because of the time he has accrued. But like he's, you know, hasn't really gotten a ton of big league run. Um, And I think you can, if you're Boston, talk yourself into the idea that like, you know, they had such a stacked roster, like them not having room for him isn't necessarily indicative of what he could eventually be. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I I think it's a limited profile. And so that's why I'm down on him relative to sort of his high as a prospect. Yeah. But who knows? Like stuff can change. Things yeah. things can break. But when you're give again, when you're given the opportunity to like really grab it and can't any don't. It's not the best. So It's interesting to me that Chris Sale had a no trade clause and he also has a club option for mm. 2025, right? right? Which I think like if he finishes in top 10 in Cy Young voting and isn't hurt yeah. at the end of the season or something, it, it vests, but that's unlikely. But often in cases like that, you see the player hold out for mm-hmm. that option to be picked up, let's say, and he didn't do that. Which makes me think either he just didn't really have a whole lot of leverage because he's Chris Sale at this point in his career, or he just really wanted to go to Atlanta. It could be that, right? I mean, winning team, maybe he just, things didn't go so great for him in Boston and he wants to go back to the South and he wants to try somewhere else with a perennial playoff team. But yeah, yeah, often you see that like, oh, you want me to waive my no trade clause? Okay, pick up my option. And I don't know whether that would have just scuttled the deal in this case or or not. Like maybe he would have overplayed his hand. Anyway, that didn't happen. But I can see why... Just like that contract was kind of hanging over Hein Bloom's head during his yeah. tenure, just wasn't getting a great return on Dave Dombrowski's investment there. And maybe Craig Breslow was just like, you know, well, let's move on. <laughs> like this yeah. was this was not my millstone, if you want to call it that, or this was not my signing. So let's just clear the decks here. And you get a young guy who maybe can be your keystone cornerstone. Sure. We'll see. It does mean that Trevor Story seems to be locked into shortstop, which yeah. I hope he can throw. I hope his surgically yeah. repaired elbow is up to that task because it wasn't great before the injury over there. But yeah, that's another investment that Craig Bresso did not make, but has to deal with. So yeah. we'll see. I mean, I think that if 
like I obviously I don't know Chris Sale, but like it doesn't seem hard to imagine, uh, particularly at this stage in his career, that if there's a contender out there that wants him and where he thinks he can make a meaningful impact and pitch postseason innings, I, I would view that as pretty appealing if I were him. I mean, I'm sure the money part matters and it wouldn't, you know, there wouldn't be anything wrong with him if it mattered a lot. But at this stage, like he's made good money, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I suspect that being in a position to to potentially win a World Series is probably pretty meaningful. So mm-hmm. yeah, that part makes sense to me. Yeah. Now, the Red Sox have been kind of confusing for years, just like, yeah. which way are they going? Are they adding? Or are they subtracting? Yeah. They're often yeah. doing both at the same time. Yeah. And that's what they did here. They said they wanted to upgrade their rotation. They clearly needed to. Here they've subtracted from it and also added to it. And they've added Lucas Giolito, who's finally parted from Reynaldo Lopez, who will now be Chris Sale's teammate. So Giolito, I... Don't give him a complete pass, but because of how weird the second half what of his a season weird was. second half of the season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, maybe there's a, a little part of me that's just like, that was weird. Maybe yeah. give him a mulligan for that. Because when sure. he was with the White Sox, he wasn't great. He wasn't like peak Giolito, and he wasn't peak Giolito in 2022 either. But he was still a productive pitcher, still clearly a pitcher that multiple teams wanted. And then he went to the Angels and was kind of a disaster there. And then when the Angels decided, actually, we're not adding, we're selling everyone at once here at the last second. Then he went to Cleveland, much better track record with pitchers and pitcher development than Mm -hmm. the Angels have. But he was... Didn't go better. No, just as bad with them, if not worse. So... I guess a lot of it was home runs. Now, he did get hit hard, but like the home run per fly ball rates in Anaheim and even more in Cleveland were like way out of whack, you know, more than double what they had been in Chicago. And the peripherals were actually fairly unchanged. Yeah. Not, not remarkable, but like XFIP, for instance, which, you know, adjusts for normalizes the home run rate. Right. In terms of like the walks and the strikeouts and stuff, like he was pretty in line with who he had been before. So I, I guess that's the reason for optimism that the right. gopheritis will go away and that he'll settle in as maybe a mid rotation guy again. It's such a funny thing to say when you're like, you just sell the way Chris Sale, but like they need innings. They especially need innings now because I don't know if you heard, but they dealt Chris Sale to the Braves. Yeah. Even when he has been less effective than he was during those really good years with Chicago, like he has provided innings and they've at least been serviceable, even if they haven't been great. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, if you're Boston and you think, what a weird year. Like, let's figure out if we can diagnose what happened. Like, I know that some of this might be the way that his fastball and changeup are interacting with one another. Like, let's figure it out and see if we can get him back to kind of what he was, or at least something that's closer to that than what we had, what we saw from him last year. We give him one place to be. We will not subject him to the weirdest waiver nonsense that we've seen in the league in quite a while. Remember when we were like really worried that that was going to. Mm-hmm. Happen a bunch. I guess we still have to worry about that, but yeah. that was like a big that was like a big deal. Did we do an emergency pod? I know I edited a <laughs> bunch of emergency stuff about the waiver process when that happened. But anyway, I 
think it's fine. Like, I I don't think that this Red Sox team is really going anywhere in the East next year. I think they're in kind of small rebuild. Let's see what we have. Let's figure out what, you know, who from the farm system we're like really keen on keeping, see if there's consolidation there. But I don't think that they're like going to be in a position to win the East next year. And I don't think they view themselves that way, but if they can help Giolito adjust back and find something that he has sort of been missing, he'll help to stop gap their innings. Like the, the back end of that deal gives them flexibility to keep him around if he's both better and they're in a position to uh, contend. So I think it's I think it's fine. Like mm-hmm. they they still they still feel a little coming and going at yeah. the same time to me. But Breslow deserves the opportunity to sort of put his stamp on the organization and and dictate its direction. So we don't need to view everything that happens as a continuation of the prior regime and like he's supposed to be the pitching guy right so Mm -hmm. maybe you know like he'll be the pitching guy and then they'll be pitching guys after that so like he seems smart um is that just because he went to an ivy league school (laughs) probably not but he does seem legit smart so i think like they get to they get to have a little time to show us what this all means and um we don't necessarily have to tag it with the same um narrative that we had of of the prior group so yeah, there was a report that the Red Sox had said that they needed to shed payroll even further, mm. that they had said that to some well, free that, agent. That's yeah. discouraging, Ben. I don't know yeah. if you know this, but I like it when teams spend money generally. Alex Cora had anointed Chris Sale as the Red Sox 2024 opening day starter back that's in awkward. September, which is an early time to call that. I said, I guess he said, if all goes well, mm. but Maybe Giolito slots into that spot, or yeah. maybe Brian Bayo does. It's not a great rotation. Yeah, it's it's seventeenth uh, in projected starting pitcher WAR on the Fangraphs depth charts. The Reds rank fifth post Montas, but the Red Sox considerably lower as it stands today with Giolito and Bayo and Pavetta and Cutter Crawford, Tanner Houck. So, yeah, depth has been an issue there. Really, everything's been an issue there. Yeah. And I I guess it still is. So you'd like to see them. I mean, they've been supposedly in the running for some top-tier starting pitchers this offseason. I don't know whether they will end up getting one or whether Giolito will be the big-ticket addition there. But, yeah, it's just been one of the more confusing organizations in baseball over the past few years. It's been a weird off season, you know, like mm-hmm. some things make a tremendous amount of sense. Like it makes sense that Otani's a Dodger. It makes sense that Yamamoto's a Dodger, that the Yankees would, would trade for Juan Soto. Like that makes, mm-hmm. that makes sense. But then like the Reds are doing weird stuff and the Braves are doing weird stuff. Although I do like the sale trade. And then the, like the Red Sox are doing weird stuff. There's a lot of weird, there's mm-hmm. a lot of weird stuff going on, Ben. Don't know yeah. about some of this weird stuff. Yeah, and it's not a super fast-paced off-season, I suppose. We've seen slower, but we've also seen faster, and maybe that's just a reflection of some of the top free agents remaining, having kind of complicated cases, maybe, with Bellinger and Snell, and how do you value those guys, and will teams value them the way that they will value themselves, or their agents will value them, so... 
those might linger, but we'll see. So one last note here before I segue into the stat blast. I did check the all-time defensive run saved leaders, and Andrelton Simmons leads Adrian Beltre by one run. So Simmons is plus 201, Beltre is plus 200. So maybe it's for the best that Andrelton Simmons retired rather than add mm. any below average innings to his tally, which would have taken him down from atop that leaderboard. Although I guess Beltre's career predated DRS. So he had a few years there before that was even counted. <laughs> so we got to give him that. But yeah. still. It's a nice leaderboard to be at the top of, although I guess it's always subject to revision. You never know with advanced stats, right? These leaderboards don't stay static forever. Let's do a stat blast. And someone on our Reddit pointed out that maybe now that we cycle through listener-submitted intro and outro themes, we should cycle through listener-submitted stat blast songs. And this person, Sergeant Bodie, didn't even know that a few years ago we actually commissioned listener-submitted mm. Stat Blast themes and we played a bunch of them then. But maybe we will bring some of those out of storage here and uh, play into our rotation all listener-submitted. Hate to take away from my wife's original recording of the Stat Blast theme, so that will certainly still be in the rotation. But we'll mix in some new ones from time to time. We'll take it Set sorted by something like ERA minus or OBS plus And then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit Discuss it at length and analyze it for us In amazing ways Here's today's stat Okay, so this stat blast is prompted by the sale trade and some other similar moves and some of the musings I've seen sparked by those transactions. I don't know that I've completely cracked this. I'm still sort of workshopping it. I was considering writing about it. I am considering writing about it. So I'm interested in your thoughts and also in the audience's feedback and maybe some suggestions for other ways to look at this. The topic is innings eaters. How do we define them? Do they still exist? To what extent are innings still being served and consumed? Last July, when the Rays acquired Aaron Savale, Jeff Passan said Savale was an innings eater. And I thought, if Aaron Savale is an innings eater, I don't know what that term means anymore. But maybe it's time to retire that term. It seems more and more that innings don't matter much. Right, especially for contending teams, which makes sense. If you're the Dodgers or you're the Braves and you can all but guarantee that you're going to be back in October, even if you don't have a whole bunch of innings eaters or whatever passes for innings eaters these days, both of those teams last year were regular season powerhouses that got knocked out in one round when they were missing some of their starters. You just want to ensure that you have a healthy Tyler Glasnow in October or you have a healthy Chris Sale in October. I don't know that you can ensure that, of course, and Sale has had a tendency to break down later in some seasons, as I've written before. But in theory, it's like whatever we get out of him, as long as he's 
good when he pitches, when he is available. And hopefully, ideally, some of those innings would be in October. Then we'll get our money's worth because it's not quite peak Chris Sale anymore. But he's still pretty good, right? Like he still misses bats and maybe there was some rust that he was shaking off. So he can still be pretty effective. I meant to mention, by the way, that the Giolito option, I guess, limits Boston's upside a bit because if he does have a good bounce back here, he can just opt out. They can't capture that upside. He can hit the market again. And so they're sort of stuck with him if he doesn't bounce back. Yeah. And then there's like a conditional option right. after that. That's yeah. maybe what I was thinking of earlier. It was still like, I don't know. I keep running. Yeah. But with Sale and also with Glass now, and maybe even Montas could be another example, or, you know, Yamamoto for that matter has not racked up huge innings totals, even for an MPB pitcher. I know that, you know, they start on a different schedule over there and it's a shorter season. So maybe the innings totals tend to be a little lower, but even compared to previous NPB aces who've come to MLB, he has topped out in his NPB career at 193, I guess, was his high in 2021. And then, you know, there's just a lot of like in 2023, he threw 171 innings. So I've seen some people say that this is a a response to sort of analytically oriented teams evaluating starters differently, like Fangraph's Mm -hmm. own Dan Siborski tweeted, I'm fascinated by the increasing tendency of some of the top teams in baseball to basically de-emphasize inning eater types, instead accumulating scads of talented pitchers with ifs and feeling confident at cobbling together the right available guys when needed. And Matt Trueblood wrote something along similar lines for Baseball Prospectus. He's been writing a series on the AL Central specifically, which is kind of undercovered maybe, and pointing out that maybe one thing that's been holding the AL Central back is that they're still going for innings eater types, not just the AL Central, the NL Central too, whereas some of the coastal teams have been going for these low-volume, high-performance guys. And you know that maybe the best example of that this offseason is the Cardinals who said that they were targeting innings and then they went and they got Lance Lynn and they got Kyle Gibson and they got Sonny Gray. So I think there's something to the idea that some teams have decided we don't want the dependable guy to the extent that any pitcher is dependable, but we want the high upside guy. And if we only get 100 innings out of sale or 120 innings out of glass now, That's fine because they'll be good innings and we can fill the rest of those innings with someone else good because we're good at making relievers out of thin air, right? But what occurs to me is that it's not even just that it's a choice between the innings eater types and the low innings total high performance guys. It's that there just isn't really such a thing as an innings right. eater anymore, <laughs> you know? Or at least it's been, you know, it doesn't mean what it did. You know, there's no. innings eaters in, in 2024 adjusted terms, but they're nothing like what we are used to seeing back, right. in, back in the day. Back. Exactly. So you're not really choosing between Chris Sale, who 
you're lucky if he gives you 100 innings as right. he did for the Red Sox this year and someone who's given you like 250 of right. like, you know, dependable, maybe mediocre innings. No one throws that many innings. The best pitchers right. don't throw that many innings. So instead of 100, maybe you're looking at like 180 or something, right? And so the opportunity cost isn't so high because those guys just aren't really out there right. the way that pitchers are developed and used these days. So I have several graphs, <laughs> which is not ideal for a podcast. These are like exhibits in my presentation here, and I'll send them to you. And I will also link to them on the show page and can kind of describe the way that I'm looking at things here. And in many of these, I, I went back just like all the way to 1920, like the live ball era. And I I skipped over the strike-shortened and pandemic-shortened years. So, for instance, I looked at the standard deviation of innings pitched per game start. So, basically, how much variation does there tend to be in how deep you go into games? And this was like a three-year rolling average and limited to pitchers who pitched at least 120 innings in any season. And as you can see on this graph, there's been a pretty steep decline yeah. in the standard deviation of innings pitch per game start, which is at an all-time low now, and it's just a lot lower than it used to be, because it used to be that you would have some guys going deep in games and other guys going less deep into games, and now it's just that like almost everyone goes sort of the same length in a given start, whether yeah. you're really good or you're not really good, there's a pretty narrow range now in how long you're going to be left in. And, yeah. and I think part of this is just that like, as the mean decreases, the standard deviation also decreases. So it's sort of a mathematical artifact. But I, I think there's also something to just less variation. I talked this over with frequent stat bus consultant Ryan Nelson and Fangraph's own Kyle Kishimoto and some others and got their thoughts on this. But that's what stands out to me is that, you know, like even if you're an elite pitcher now, it doesn't mean you're just going to give your team a ton of innings. Right. And so there's just not really that much difference effectively between your innings eater, whatever that is now, and someone who's just like Sale, who was basically like a five and dive, right? Yeah. But, but Kyle Gibson was like a 5.8 and dive, you know? Right. It's just it's not that big a difference. He's basically what would pass for an innings eater these days, although at earlier eras, people would scoff at the idea of someone yeah. being an innings eater who I think has never even reached 200 innings in a season, but he's consistently close at least. And that's just like the ceiling is so much lower that there just really isn't much of a, a difference anymore yeah. between a, a Sale and a Gibson, at least in any given game. I guess part of it is like availability. Like it's it's not even innings eating it's like start making these days maybe that's part of it that you just want someone who you know is going to take the ball even if you're not going to end up with that guy going deep into a game at least you don't have to call someone up or use an opener 
you know, juggle around your rotation because someone who's maybe not so good, maybe it's partly that if you're really good, maybe you throw harder, maybe that makes right. you more liable to get injured. And so you have like a glass now or a sale who's not really going super deep into games. And then you have a Gibson who's also not going super deep into games, but is at least taking the ball almost every time out. So maybe that's the the difference. But in terms of just total innings, it's just, it's not really that great, I guess. And here's a, another way I looked into this, my second exhibit that I just sent you. So I also looked at the correlation between war per inning and innings pitched per game start. So this is basically the correlation between how good you are on a per inning basis and how many innings you pitch per start. Because yeah. you'd think that, okay, if you're really good on a per inning basis, then they would want you to throw more innings. So this is looking right. at the correlation there among pitchers with at least 20 starts in a season. And as you can see on this graph, there was almost no correlation back in like the 20s and 30s. Yeah. There a very weak correlation, which I interpret this to mean that back then everyone was just going to go deep into the game. Right. Like it didn't even matter, matter if you were good or not. You know, there yeah. was just an expectation that you were going to finish what you started. And so unless you were really getting shelled or you got hurt or something, you were just going to stay in there. And the difference wasn't really the length of the start, but the effectiveness of the start or how many innings, uh, how many runs you allowed. But then over time, gradually the correlation rose and rose and rose to the point where it got to be quite strong. So by the time you get to, say, the late 90s, early 2000s, the correlation's like 0.7-ish, which is quite strong. So that means the higher your war rate, essentially, how much war you're accumulating on a per inning basis, the more innings you're throwing per start. You're a better mm. pitcher. They're letting you go deeper into games. However, as you can see, in the last decade or so, that has begun to decline again. The correlation is getting lower. It's like a roller coaster. It went up and up and up, and now it's starting to head down again. And I think that gets at what I'm saying here that it's just it doesn't matter as much how good you are that isn't really the thing that's governing how deep you go into the game because yeah you're just you're gonna get pulled regardless even if you're really yeah. good because a there's the times through the order penalty and just generally workload concerns and bullpens are better and you have more viable relievers who are going to be better than a tired even ace and so everyone's going to go because we know that no matter how good you are you're less effective after you've faced the same hitters for a few times and b maybe you're more likely to be good on a per inning basis because you know coming in, I'm not going deep into this game. So I can just yeah. air it out. You know, I can let it yeah. eat. I'm not saving anything for later. And maybe your team even tells you, hey, we just want five from you. You know, just give us a good five and you're done. And so you're just, you're not coasting. You're not taking any plate appearances off. It's max effort all the time. And so you're going to empty the tank more quickly, even though that'll make you a bit better. So 
that I think is a sign that, yeah, we, we've now gotten away from how good you are dictates how deep you go into a game to there's still a relationship there, but it's a weaker relationship than it was yeah. 20 years ago, let's say. Yeah, it's interesting. This is interesting. Yeah. Okay. I'm not done. I have a few more graphs oh to show gosh. you. <laughs> so another thing that stands out to me is that starting pitchers just as a whole and even individually aren't as valuable as they used to be. Now, maybe yeah. maybe that seems obvious, but I feel like until really the last few years, it hasn't been dramatic enough to to notice yeah. s- because just these past few years have, have really been like there was a trend, but it's gotten accelerated, I think. So here, for instance, is a graph that shows the average fan graphs war of the top 10 starters in a season. And this is a rolling average again in the 162 game season era. So just taking the top 10 pitchers or starters by fan graphs were and taking the average of their wars. And as you can see, it's now lower than it's ever been. And I, I think we may have brought that up when we were talking about pitching awards or pitching award contenders at some point late last season, because the individual seasons were not particularly impressive. You yeah. know, like there was no one having a seven or eight war, right. at least fan graphs were pitching season. And I think part of that is just because, again, the inning ceiling has been lopped off. Even if you're an ace, even if you're elite, you're not going to go 250 or even 220, right? I mean, Sandy Alcantara was doing that for a while. Look what happened to him. I mean, it just, it doesn't really, even when Justin Verlander, his career started, like you could still go, you know, 250 or something if you were a top of the rotation guy. And now- not so much. And so yeah. like the average fan graphs were of a top 10 starter these days is like somewhere between five and five and a half war. It's just, you know, and in let's say the early seventies when, you know, men were men and they went right. deep into games, it was like seven and a half war. So like the average top 10 starter now is like two wins above replacement less valuable than they were in the early 70s or even in like, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. It was like seven war was kind of the average of the top 10 guys. And now it's like five and a half or less than five and a half. There have been some exceptions, some really impressive individual pitching seasons. But on the whole, like an ace isn't worth what an ace used to be worth. Yeah. And I think that there's this perception you know, you're joking about it a little bit with the one men were men. Like there's this perception that this is like a flaw, a new flaw on the part of starters, right? That there's like increased fragility. And I mean that in an actual physical way, not in a like one men were men way. Mm-hmm. We have to grapple with the reality of what throwing like much harder than yeah. than starters did, you know, 20 years ago, the effect that that has on the arm and the shoulder and and whatnot. But I think that it's important for everyone to remember that, like, you know, a lot of young starters are kind of bumping up against an innings limit, not because they have necessarily exhibited some 
fragility that teams are like, oh, we have to manage this guy carefully. That does exist. But a lot of it is teams being like, this is what we think the best way for you to be deployed is so that we can have you continue to throw hard, potentially minimize injury risk, potentially minimize your salary and arbitration, Mm -hmm. right? Like a lot of this is directed from the team side. Um, And there are a variety of motivations, some of which are about maximizing, you know, Velo while still maintaining health, some of which are player development related and some of which are labor related. But like, I, I think that there is a persistent idea among fans that this is like, that there's some like, preening soft generation of guys coming up and it's like Mm -hmm. you know maybe that's true on an individual basis but there are also just as many guys who are like i'd love to throw 200 innings but that's not what they're asking of me and that's not the way that i've been developed so you know i think that's just worth noting yeah and i've cited some research before by rob mains who did show what you're saying about the impact of modern pitching usage on payrolls and i don't know that this was a nefarious scheme necessarily, but I think that has been one of the effects that when you are distributing your innings over a wider swath of pitchers, and a lot of those pitchers are guys you're calling up from AAA right. who are on that AAA shuttle, or right. you know, you put someone on the IL and you call someone up, and maybe there's even some phantom IL shenanigans going on from time to time, then you end up with pitchers who are making the league minimum and are kind of coming and going. They're taking some of those innings that in the past might have gone to your top of the rotation guy who's really going to cash in in free agency eventually. And that's just not really happening anymore. So more of the innings are going to league minimum or close to league minimum pitchers. And that was on an individual basis, like an ace isn't necessarily worth what an ace used to be worth. And you can see that on a league wide level also. And uh, I have a graph for that. In fact, I have two graphs for that, just different ways to look at it that show you like the total or percentage of pitching war Mm. by starters. And then versus, yeah. Yeah, Mm. juxtaposed with the percentage of innings pitched by starters. And so as the percentage of innings pitched by starters has decreased, so has the total war produced by starters or the percentage of total pitching war produced by starters. They have not moved completely in lockstep in the last few years, which is interesting. So if you notice on those graphs, the decline just in the the past few years in war is not as steep as the decline in innings pitched. So there's been really a a drop-off in the percentage of innings pitched thrown by starters in the past few years, whereas the war produced by starters has declined a little less steeply, which I think is probably because if starters are not throwing as many innings, the innings that they are throwing are probably more effective on the whole, right? Because, you know, they're, they're not going through the third time through the order, and so they're not incurring that penalty. Sure. So so probably their innings are a bit better on the whole. And maybe also you're digging deeper into your pool of potential relievers and calling up some scrubs to throw some garbage time bullpen innings. And that's maybe dragging down the war of the relievers and making the starters look better. But it really is like just in the past five years-ish that there's been like a really steep decline because like from the mid-80s to the, 
almost mid-2000s, pretty flat, like the percentage of innings by starters and then also the war produced by starters, not much of a decrease. Like there's a decrease, you know, going from the 60s and 70s when there were really guys racking up huge innings totals and offense was lower and pre-DH and everything. And then once you get into like the 80s, it was, you know, mostly unchanged or just the the most gradual decline for a few decades there. And then just like, you know, the the last decade or, or even less has when has been when some of these movements have really kind of, you know, gathered steam. Yeah. 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 And then the last thing to show you here, I guess this is also related to the conversation about uh, innings and how desirable they are and what's an innings eater these days. So here's one thing I looked at, which is just the the correlation between innings pitched and war among qualified starters. Obviously, there are fewer qualified starters than there used to be, but just, and that's, you know, people who pitched at least one inning per team game, a lot fewer pitchers qualified, and we've talked about whether they should change what the qualifications are now that there's such a smaller pool of pitchers who do, quote unquote, qualify. But the correlation between innings pitched and war among qualified starters has also dropped off the table just in the last handful of years from like 0.6-ish to 0.4-ish, which is a pretty big percentage decrease. And again, that just means that like knowing a starter's innings total just doesn't explain their war as well as it once did. Right. You know, it used to be that like if you knew how many innings they pitched – that would be a pretty big tell as to how valuable they were. And now it's not so much. And I think, again, maybe part of that is that there's just less variation, even among qualified starters. Like, you know, you only need 162 innings pitched to qualify if your team plays all its games. So it used to be that there were guys who like doubled what you needed to qualify. Whereas now, even the pitchers who qualify are barely qualifying, right? Like Logan Webb led the majors with 216 innings pitch in 2023. Only five pitchers got to the 200 inning mark. Yeah. And so even most of the pitchers who qualify are like barely scraping by. So the the variation just isn't that great. You know, it used to be that qualified pitchers, there might be some guys who threw 170 innings and other guys who threw 300. Now there are some guys who threw, who throw 170 and like a handful who throw 200, but that's about it. You know, there's, there's just not much variation there. So like innings alone, not really gonna set you apart, I don't think. And then the last image in this same vein, this just shows the, the number of above and below average pitchers per team who've gotten to 180 innings pitched. And so, yeah, so I used ERA minus for this at at Fangraphs and I looked for pitchers who had a greater than or equal to 100 ERA minus. So ERA minus higher is bad, unlike ERA plus. So with ERA minus, you want to have a lower one. So guys who had 100 or higher, so basically worse than average, and guys who had below 100, so better than average. And there have always been more 
good pitchers, better than average pitchers who get to 180 innings pitch than below average pitchers who get there. Because, you know, if you are good, they're going to want you to throw more innings in general. But there's been a similar decline. So, yeah, there aren't really any innings eaters anymore if we're defining innings eater as someone who's mediocre or maybe below average but still pitches regularly and racks up innings. There are hardly any of those guys anymore, but the good pitchers who get to that innings threshold have declined just as much, you know, like back in the 20s, let's say there were like two and a half better than average guys who got to 180 innings per team. And there were like one below average guy who got there per team. And now it's like you're not even getting one per team of the good guys and the below average guys, you're you're barely getting any. It's just like a handful in the whole league. But the magnitude of the decline for each is similar. So it's not just that like the innings eaters who aren't really throwing good innings, that teams have been like, well, we only want you to throw a lot of innings if they're good innings. No, even if you're throwing good innings – you're not going to be allowed to throw that many. So there just aren't innings eaters who are good or bad anymore is basically what I'm getting at. So that to me, I think is sort of a different wrinkle. It's like, yeah, we know that pitchers across the board are throwing fewer innings, but one effect of that is that there just isn't that much variation anymore. Like what is an innings eater now in relative terms just isn't really separated from the like good but rarely available guy there's just not much of a difference anymore so no wonder that teams are like yeah i'll take a flyer on frankie montas or i'll sign up for chris sale or tyler glasdow or even yamamoto and i'm not expecting that many innings but that's okay if they're good innings i'm not really missing out on the alternative because <laughs> the alternative is is not you know it's like jordan lyles is is the the last of the <laughs> the old school innings eaters who's just yeah. not good but still pitches a lot of innings every year you know it's him and kyle gibson it's like you know, even like a Lance Lynn, you think of him as an innings eater, but how many innings is he actually going to eat at this stage of his career? So, yeah, I, I think the innings eater and, and Chad Jennings wrote something about this for The Athletic recently about the death of the innings eater. But I think it's just the death of high innings totals for anyone, even really good guys. And so might as well roster someone who will be good whenever he pitches, even if he doesn't pitch that much. I think part of why I've always resisted being too concerned about this is that there's like a natural, there's a floor, right? Because you you only have so many roster spots. You can only bring guys up and down so often. Guys only have so many options to begin with, right? Like there is sort of a natural limit, but where that limit is and like how fun it is to watch mm-hmm. are not necessarily perfectly overlapping with one another, right? Yeah. And so I think that while there's going to have to be arrested momentum around this at some point, that doesn't mean that like it won't be unfun to watch mm-hmm. in the meantime. So like we should think about how we can construct probably roster rules to try to stem the tide a little bit because yeah. it doesn't seem like there's going to be a natural, you know, like there's not going to be a natural turning away from this trend from a player dev or um, right. roster construction perspective without the, like a rule in place that as always the answers regulation and all likelihood. 
Yeah. In theory, right, some team could decide, well, we want to go for softer tossing guys who are always available because there's this uh, epidemic of sproings and UCL injuries, and maybe we will have the market inefficiency of healthy pitchers who are not that great on a per inning basis, but they're always available, and thus we won't have to dip deeper into our depth chart to get our innings from somewhere. But I just, I don't know that that will happen. Yeah, barring further roster restrictions, which I'm in favor of. We've talked about many times just lowering the number of pitchers permissible on the active roster. If you do that, then you are going to have to have guys go deeper into games and pace themselves and pitch in a pinch, as uh, the Christy Mathewson saying goes. So I'm in favor of bringing that back, but you're right. I don't think it's going to happen yeah. organically, right? And I guess you could say, well, how fun is it to watch a Kyle Gibson or a Jordan Lyles or someone of that ilk go deep into sure. a game? Not, you know, no offense to those guys, but the stuff is not spectacular, right? So yeah. maybe there's something to be said for that. Like if we're just watching high talent high stuff guys in shorter bursts maybe that is more entertaining in some ways than watching these like plotting pitchers just pile on so-so inning after so-so inning but I still think you know all the times we've talked about the starting pitcher as protagonist and the entertainment value of seeing someone go deeper into a game and have to adjust to that that there is some merit to that yeah all right, so memo to innings eaters. Innings are off the menu. If you have ideas for other ways I could convey that flattening of workloads, that decreasing separation between innings eaters and non-innings eaters, please write in podcastatfancrafts.com. I welcome suggestions for other charts I could make, other ways I could crunch those numbers. And a couple quick follow-ups. We've talked probably multiple times about possible solutions for the problem of players breaking their own appendages in frustration after things don't go great for them in games. Chris Sale, for instance, had a meltdown in a minor league rehab assignment, smashed a TV with a bat, and the team moved a punching dummy into the tunnel between the dugout and the clubhouse in his honor. We have suggested that teams should either pad the walls around the vicinity of the dugout or maybe put a punching bag in there, prevent any Jared Kelnick incidents, any Kevin Brown incidents, pitchers punching walls, players kicking coolers. Well, Craig, Patreon supporter, wrote in to say, in episode 2038, you responded to a message from listener Diego who asked if a solution to ballplayers punching and thus breaking their hands on hard dugout surfaces could be solved by a dugout punching bag. As I recall, we subsequently followed up to say that there is or was a punching bag in the visitor's dugout bathroom at Miller Park or American Family Field. But maybe it's not the only big league ballpark that's punch-proofed. Because Craig says, I was watching a drone tour of the NHL's Winter Classic set up at T-Mobile Park and was struck, pun intended, by a brief cameo of Mariner Moose going to town on a punching bag located in the tunnel behind the home dugout. I can't be certain if this is something that was added for the Winter Classic festivities or if it's a feature of the Mariners dugout, but I wanted to let you know that although it is not in public view, the dugout punching bag is a thing, apparently in multiple Major League Parks. Thank you, Craig. Maybe it was installed in response to Kelnick's entry, or if it was already in place, then that suggests that this is not a foolproof prevention tactic. Another thing Chris Sale is famous or notorious for doing is cutting up a jersey with scissors. Well, listener Patreon supporter Ed wrote in in response to episode 2104 
or when we talked about bullying in Korea and Korean baseball and noted that in light of that conversation, Chen Ho Park's extreme reaction to rookie hazing doesn't seem so surprising now. He reminded me of an incident when Park was a rookie in 1996 with the Dodgers and his teammates used scissors to turn his suit into a short pants and vest outfit. He was extremely upset about this. He thought it was demeaning. He said he was hazed when he was in school. The players eventually explained that it was supposed to be an affectionate gesture, but because of cultural differences, it was not interpreted that way. It was seen as an affront, as a humiliation. So very relevant in light of that conversation with Jiho Yu last week. You can ring in the new year by supporting the podcast on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash effectively wild, sign up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get yourself access to some perks, as have the following five listeners. Bobby, Michelle Barone, Dan Wiley, Justin Behan, and Bob Bryan. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, prioritized email answers, potential podcast appearances, discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and so much more. Check out all the options at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. And of course, you can contact us via email at podcast at fangraphs.com. Send us your questions and comments. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Mac Longpre and Sophie Wellsman for today's amazing Stat Blast song cover, and thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. Number one fan grass baseball podcast. It's that cast is stat blast. TOPS plus when the stats need contrast. Zips and steamer for the forecast. Coming in high, big boss on a hovercraft. No notes, minor league free agent draft. Burn the ships, flames jumping for a nav. Cow femur. Boning on the bat shaft, makers on the butt feet, never say your hot seat. Games are always better with the pivot table spreadsheet. No ads, subscribers will support us. Room, room fast on your slog to rig a morning.